You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 93. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Aaron, thanks for joining me for part two of our November news update, I guess this is called. Yeah, there's there's a lot to cover, so uh, we, we had to... Had to break it in into two pieces here. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, summer is always pretty slow, but uh, now it's uh, now it's going. The, the summer is usually when I do all my interviews. The summer and the spring, uh, but now the news is coming out. Uh, but it's nice to do this every well, every month. We're we're in the sprint to New Year's. It, it'll be over before yeah. you know it. Well, the sprint to the end of the decade. How many? And <laughs> um, uh, I'm. I'm you know, there has to be of like look back at the last decade, predict the next de- decade. But I don't want to like overdo it. So there's kind of a, um, I don't know, I still have to decide how many decade flip themed shows I should do. Well, I, I makes me wonder uh, what, what upcoming predictions there are on Metaculous that we could uh, tap into <laughs> for some inspiration there. That's true. That's true. We have our tech retreat we can look forward to. So there'll be another prediction show. Yep, that's uh, today always prediction heavy. Yeah. So today's going to be, I, I think this is more of our Local Maximum Wheelhouse here. We're going to talk about um, decentralization and recentralization of technology. We talk about that a lot, but the, the Wall Street Journal has kind of a um, their own take on it in a um, – is this an op-ed or is this just a, a, a pure news article? I think I, a pure news article. I was just wondering that here. myself. Uh, yeah. It's called Tech Giants Have Hijacked the Web. It's time for a reboot. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so it's it's um, in their tech section, so it's it's not labeled as op-ed. Yep. Yep. We are going to be talking about Manning Publishing, who has sponsored the show. Uh, you can get all sorts of books on there about um, that will help you uh, increase you know, your marketability and your skills in computer science and in software engineering and in machine learning and you know unstructured data for machine learning. And we're also going to talk a little bit about A/B testing today. I'm going to give uh, we're going to talk about an article, and I'm going to give some of my experiences and my. Um, you know, uh, my, my thoughts on the role of A-B testing and uh, you know, how it could be misused. Maybe it's being overused. Um, and if we have time, a little bit of science journalism. So we got a lot to get into. I don't want this to last, you know, more than an hour. So why don't we just dive into it? Okay. Uh, so I, I guess that starts us off with the, uh, with the, the Wall Street Journal article, um, which, which was really, uh, I, I guess, the, well, the headline was that, that tech giants have have hijacked the web and it's time for a reboot. And, and so they're, they're looking at kind of a, the, whatever the next big, you know, uh, would it be web 3.0, uh, reinvention that's, that's you going know, to, it's, are, are we it's way past 3.0? Well, cause web 2.0 was like in, in 2005. And I don't even think like that was maybe some of the social stuff, but it was more like, oh, look at this fancy stuff you could do with JavaScripts now where like stuff moves <laughs> over all over the screen. And, you know, um, it, it, yeah. But, but basically I think it, the, the, the monopolies of Google, Facebook, uh, to some extent, maybe Apple, uh, I'm, I'm sure they would lump like Netflix in there. Amazon. Yeah. Amazon, Am- Amazon for sure. Yeah. The, the, the fang companies. Absolutely. Uh, that that they control too much of of the traffic on the web, and that they have too much of your information that they they're holding, you know, kind of okay. internally this is and not, propriet- proprietary. Th- no one's no one's sitting there being like, you know, well, this is news, you know, <laughs> or everyone's saying this is news. Nobody's sitting there saying, whoa, this is news. I never heard that before. Uh, <laughs> so let's uh, let's go in with the starting quote here and try to break down what do they mean by hijacked and what do they mean by time for a reboot? Because I've been hearing this for 10 years. Um, what what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? And are there any historical examples that we can look back to? So first, I'm going to go with the starting quote, Facebook co-founder. Mark Zuckerberg said in a speech last week at Georgetown University that his social media megacorp and its big tech peers, quote, have decentralized power by putting it directly into people's hands. So (laughs) let's unpack that for a bit, because that's sort of like, whoa, he's saying he decentralized power when really he's centralized power. Uh, That's uh, that takes a lot of um, uh, that takes uh, well, uh, as, as just, any physicist will tell you, it entirely takes a lot of nerve. Frame of reference. Yeah, it takes a lot of nerve to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I think okay. 
let's let's try to un- unpack what he means by decentralization because prior to and I think Twitter is a better example here Twitter and Blogger prior to that uh, I think he's talking about the decentralization of having a voice Absolutely. on the web and the idea that you know pre Facebook pre Twitter uh, you know you had to be a journalist or a high-level entertainer to get out to large numbers of people. Like, look at this podcast, for example. Um, you know, a thousand people listen to this podcast every week, and it's just going to go up from there. Uh, but even when I started, fine, it was like, you know, I, it was not that hard to get 20, 30 people if you're well-spoken, if you're interesting. If you want to post stuff on Facebook, your friends and family can uh, get it immediately. And so that's what I think of when he says it's the decentralization of, um, you know, decentralization of media or social media is the decentral, uh, decentralization of media. Yeah, it's which, like, which okay, a lot of everyone people would argue comp- that that's the problem, uh, that we've removed the gatekeepers. And so the quality of content and the uh, veracity of that content becomes more in question. Uh, yes, that 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 is maybe a completely different question, but I don't think you can can you can entirely divorce it from what's what's being discussed here, especially when uh, a paragraph or two in they they throw in. Um, well, in the second paragraph, they throw out references to uh, Russian agents and uh, manipulating the 2016 election. And then there's the quote, the Internet is a corporate monopoly today and monopolies are always a danger to democracy. So. It, say, Aaron, you can't separate I, those issues and and then make that I, call. I'm out. not liking this. I'm not liking this article right now. <laughs> I feel like this article was just written by a computer. It's just like 2016 Russian election. Uh, uh, well, pa- Paul Vigna, to democracy. if that is your real name, we're on to you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I feel like this is the this is the Wall Street Journal, right? These are just this whole narrative of oh. Russian election, Cambridge Analytica, danger to democracy. I mean, there, there's grains of truth well, in all to, of that. To, but to be fair, the like, danger to democracy that? wasn't that. That was actually a quote from a uh, uh, a media professor at the University of Westminster, Westminster, London. Uh, oh yeah, so, I, well let's read the full quote uh, here. Capitalizing uh, from from the from the professor, capitalizing on the oceans of data produced by the web has turned Facebook Inc. and Alphabet Inc.'s Google into empires, but it hasn't made the internet a more open place, said Christian Fuchs, a media professor at the University of Westminster in London. The internet is a corporate monopoly today, he said, and monopolies are always a danger to democracy. But I think we have to compare it to what came before. I mean, what what came before... Because, okay... Actually, now now I'm sort of even though Mark Zuckerberg has some nerve to say that he decentralized power, <laughs> he, he removes he, some barriers to entry. That that yes. be, before Facebook was as widespread and and uh, fully subscribed as it is now, uh, you could put your your thoughts out there with a blog or or even a podcast in early days, uh, but it required uh, a certain amount of tech savvy to really be able to pull it off. Uh, but and, I, yeah, and and Facebook I can't... coming along made it require almost zero knowledge and effort to put your ideas out there. Yeah, and I can't get behind what the media professor is saying. It hasn't made the internet a more open place. Well, compared to what? Compared to what it was 20 years ago, you're absolutely right. You know, it took a lot of... I mean, I guess it was open because everyone could be... Like, all these crazy groups were on there, and they still are. But... Uh, well, it, it's more it depends open to on your horizon less... too, because if, yeah. if you look at at twenty years ago, absolutely, it's it's much more open now. If you look at five, ten years ago, I think there there was an explosion between ten and five years ago in in the blogosphere, so to speak, and that has largely died off because everything has moved to Twitter and Facebook and the more organized, centralized platforms. So there there was there was an explosion and then a reconsolidation. Um, okay, and, and that's and the history you, of the if world. If you look, if you look far enough back then then absolutely we're in a more open uh place now than we were then if you only look a little bit back then it looks like we've we've become more constrained this this is an important point i think to make when you're ever you're having any of these conversations because you have to talk about what your frame of reference is are you comparing to 20 years ago before social media are you comparing to the last five ten years or are you comparing to your imaginary perfect world that doesn't exist um because the latter is definitely not fair uh, it's. I mean, uh, 
other than to say this is the way it should work and this is what we can build so that the future works like this. And also, I think it was interesting that you said, you know, explosion and reconsolidation. That is pretty much how markets always work when you have these innovative platforms coming in. Yeah, um, and in fact, I, I was I was picturing uh, more of a a uh, biological uh, evolutionary uh, pattern in there, but but I, I think it it holds true that 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 kind of uh, behavior is uh, it's a natural phenomenon, and so it's it's not at all a surprise to see it in this realm. What what are you thinking in terms of biological? The type of biology that talks about uh, species and and evolution and and etymology. No, not is it entomology or etymology? <laughs> entomology. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, what one is one is the or, is the, uh, the the root of words, and the other is is the uh, evolution of species. But uh, okay. that 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 when when a, a breakthrough happens in evolution, you tend to have kind of an explosion in in different variations on that theme, uh, and then eventually they will reconsolidate on the a smaller set of of adaptations that are best suited. But but it takes so- that that explosion to present all the possible options, and then the natural, uh, you could almost say market forces of nature uh, will winnow that down to those that are truly most effective, most successful. No, that's true too. And oftentimes markets and um, natural ecologies have uh, analogous- Thank you, you ecology. That's the term we were looking for. Okay, okay. Yeah, they often have- (laughs) They uh, often when you analyze one and the, the analysis is very similar. Um, and yeah, so it's almost an exploration and then an exploitation of the of the things that have worked. Um, OK, uh, yeah, I mean, is, cool. and, and so that's interesting. That, yeah, that that's an interesting way the, to think about it. That gets us to the first note I made on this. This article was uh, but it hasn't made the Internet a more open place. And I, in addition to defining your your scale and your parameters for your comparison there, what? How do you measure the openness of the internet? Uh, that, that's it's it's a nice term to throw out, and it sounds like openness is good. And why wouldn't we want more of it? But but how do you even measure that? Never mind. How do you quantify whether it's something desirable or not? Uh, that that's that's left entirely unaddressed. Yeah, I mean, why is okay? Is the podcasting world more open or less open than it was five years ago? It seems like there's a lot of tools to make it easier. Yeah. Um, there, there are is, certainly is more podcasts now, but there are yeah. also more podcast uh, companies which have podcasts under their umbrella. So you could say that that they're perhaps uh, monopolizing what would have previously been the equivalent of kind of mom and pop uh, podcast organizations. Yeah, well, that hasn't happened with podcasts yet. Uh, well, in the it, same way that it has happened with uh, Facebook, Twitter, and c- certainly even, not to that extent. But you have yeah. uh, you have like Gimlet. Which is a kind of a podcast well, umbrella, well, which is corporate Spotify, and is now yeah. part of Spotify, uh, and and there are similar uh, podcast collectives. Almost gives it too much of a a freewheeling socialist commune feel to it, but uh, networks with a, a strong corporate bent. So uh, there's there's uh, is it is it Gas Digital? Um, sure. Which is well, which they're is a, they're a tiny. Corp- yeah. they, they, they're comparatively oh, tiny, but but they're very much a business. It's not just yeah. a, a bunch of podcast podcasters who got together and said oh we'll we'll cross promote each other a little bit right i mean then there's a lot of, there's all the political ones too yeah. there's the there's the right wing ones there's the left wing ones what's the and and then there's uh, daily the wire and, serious, and joe se- and joe rogan's just huge and all that and then there's satellite radio which is basically a podcast network with a much more expensive and wide-reaching infrastructure okay but you're kind of proving the point now that how decentralized it is because of how many players there are and how fluid it is at least in 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 this particular point in time with regard to podcasting Uh, but the internet in general maybe is different because i will i think when they say hijack the web i think what they're talking about is people spend all their time on the web um and so well, I mean, where do people spend all their time on the web? And it's almost always all, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter. And well, right. Yeah. There's, maybe there was this, there's there's the whole walled garden concept. And, and the, there was the big argument that started being made a couple of years ago that no longer do people actually go to websites. They they go to these these environments. So your, your Facebooks uh, or uh, I'm drawing a blank on what the others would be. But 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 similar, you, you know, your, your Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Instagram, they're, they're not going yeah. to uh, websites. They're going to 
these services, which are are either in the form of an app, you can access through them them through the web, it's, but it's not web traffic that's driving it. And once you get there, you tend to stay in inside it and navigate around internally. It's interesting how this is kind of similar to you know the way people first got on the web in the '90s when you're talking about you know the AOL's walled garden and uh, or, or, or CompuServe or, or yeah, yeah, yeah whatever else that. there was. Um, yeah, and then that just that broke apart and then reconsolidated again. And by the way, I think this happens again. Uh, it's not like it, it, there's an explosion and a consolidation. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not another explosion right around the corner, uh, which I believe there absolutely could be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, come from... you, you have to expect it'll be a continuous uh, cycle until it stops. Yeah. And there's so no way of telling when that's going to stop. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's move forward a little bit. Let's talk about... Uh, this article talks a little bit about uh, the Tim Berners-Lee plan. Is that uh, the the only one they talk about, or they talk about others too? Uh, but, uh, that... So we talked a little bit about this back in episode 36. Um, he wants to build a, <laughs> in Silicon Valley style, a new internet. But hey, he's the inventor of the World Wide Web, so he has a lot of credibility on that one. Yeah, I, and so so this is the, the concept of, of what he refers to as a pod, which it, it sounds like... Uh, would essentially be a place where your personal data is stored and it can be linked in with, with services at, so that they can utilize it, but that you retain the data. And it's right. it's unclear exactly how that's going to work. And it's I don't know if that's because uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, chose not to discuss that or doesn't understand it, or if, I'll tell if you. the team developing it at, at was it, Interrupt, uh, hasn't totally figured it out themselves yet. I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how it works. I don't know if all of the sirens are coming out. There's been uh, there's all <laughs> sorts of high crime and everything in Brooklyn these days and lots of uh, noise pollution. But uh, we, um, OK, so I, the way a pod would work is it's essentially you're owning your own server. So you have a let, let, let's use Facebook as an example. All right. So instead of logging on to Facebook, you have a machine. Let's say it's in your home. I know this sounds crazy. This is the way I'm going to describe it. It's going to sound crazy, and and you're not going to do it. But then we're going to adjust it so that it sounds less crazy. Um, let's say you have a machine in your home that, when somebody goes to your Facebook page, or your Facebook wall, or uh, just wants to know what your comments are on different message boards, they would have to hit uh, your server, and so. Uh, their message gets sent to your server, and then um, and then you know who's contacting, who's getting your information, and and all that stuff. And then um, you know, uh, basically, it's it's decentralized and that everybody is running their own server with their own information on it. In, in much the same way, like everybody can run in their own house a server that hosts their own website on it. Now, nobody is going to want to do that, you know, from their own home and personally. Certainly so, not to scale. Yeah, yeah. So, right, oh, yeah. I shouldn't say nobody. I mean, plenty of people would, but um, in in general, there would have to be a service where <laughs> you would log on, and then you would kind of request one of these machines that they have in their data center that is quote yours. I mean, it's not really yours, but it's uh, essentially going to be um, the the one that only you have access to, and uh, that is sort of your slice of the new Facebook or the new Twitter or whatever it is um, that goes out to the world. I, I don't see, um, in some ways, I don't see the benefit to that that much, uh, different than, than what goes on now. But I think the big benefit is the end of, you know, it, it's sort of the end of the big data model. Um, the question is, could it be, you're not going to do this by just building a new Facebook or building a new Twitter. Nobody is going to use that system to do the same thing that they could do now uh, and just say, oh, well, we're not going to give you ads and we're going to charge you and we're not going to track you and all that. I don't think you're going to get a lot of people. But if you could get some system like that, some decentralized system where everybody has their data on their own machine or something that's like their own machine but you know, controlled externally, which I, purists aren't going to like, but... You know, you, you, it's not going to work. I, I don't know if you agree or disagree. It's not going to work any other way, folks. Um, it, it, it'll have to be virtualized. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be some kind of like a bank that you go to. Like, you know, you keep your money in a bank and it's safe. You keep your server in a server bank and it's safe there. Um, it has to be some other application uh, other than social networking. Well, so the the 
there, there are a number of questions this raises, but one of them is would it, if this is in some way replacing Facebook? Uh, I, or, I don't or think it's it would like, replace Facebook because but that's cer- certainly the way they're pitching it is as a replacement. And yeah. and and my what I wonder is would it be able to interface with that or would it require you moving to a completely new you know whatever it is so because I I think without a major uh, a major disruption in the market and I hate myself for using that that hackneyed <laughs> phrase uh, yeah. you're not going to get people to pick up and leave Facebook but if you could have a way for them to interface with it which from their end would seem seamless seem seamless would feel seamless. Uh, but that would allow them to have control over their data so that it can't be farmed by Facebook. That would be attractive. But I don't, yeah. I don't think if, if Facebook can still interact with your data, what's to stop them from scraping it from your pod? I, I'm sure there's a way to do that, but it doesn't seem immediately apparent to me how you could get the same experience that you currently have without giving anything up. I guess the idea would be that, um, in order to scrape from your pot, you wouldn't just be able to, you wouldn't just be putting stuff out there into the public. You would use some public-private cryptography. So if I send a message to you, for example, uh, only you would be able to read it. Now, the problem with, you know, Facebook friends only, now the friends are a much larger group of people. But, right. um, yeah, well, I and, think... And if, if there's some sort of algorithm that needs to run on your data, uh, I can't imagine that, that Facebook is going to, send the algorithm to your pod and let you run it there if that's some sort of proprietary uh, piece of code and it would defeat the purpose of the pod for them to send a request and you just send them the data that they want to input into that. It wouldn't work. And if you wanted to get the user experience that Facebook has, it would be nowhere near as good. And I hate to say, I hate to say that Facebook has a good user experience, but it would just be, it could um, certainly be, it would just be, it would be a total mess. Um, It would just be, yeah, it would be. So, so the, the other issue and, and you hinted at this is if, if they're not using your data to somehow monetize it, uh, then, then they have to make money somehow. So presumably uh, the hosting of a pod, even if you're hosting the pod yourself on your own server in your house, can can you stop for a second? Stop for a second. I hate the term pod because it sounds like podcast, but sorry, go ahead. We're talking uh, about your server. These guys are not marketing guys who are creating this. I'm well, just, I, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that POD is, is an acronym for something. Yeah. Uh, it, it's your personal online data. There we go. Okay. Uh, so that's not, that's not any good, better. If, if your personal online data is being hosted, even in your own home, in your own server, you're running their software. So you, you've got to license yeah. that somehow, presumably. Or if you're running it on a virtualized server uh, in, in some server farm somewhere, you've got to pay for those resources. Uh, so what, I mean, does that come in the form of a subscription? Or or do you then go and, and resell your data to chosen uh, vendors and use that to pay for your 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 server costs and then whatever extra is left over you can collect as as kind of a bonus um not unlike people with solar panels on their house where if they produce more than they use they get a a a credit from the power company yeah well so i I should also note yeah i mean i I should also note like when i was at nyu uh, a bunch of students there started a company called uh, diaspora which is this distributed social network and i believe that their nodes are also called pods and so uh, it's still around, and they started building this in 2010. But it did not, um, you know, it, it, it didn't uh, dethrone Facebook in any meaningful way. I mean, you, you need of some sort of, of lightning so, strike event to to get that kind of thing to catch on in the way it would would need to. to no, get the like I said, here. it has to be something completely uh, different from yeah. the problem that Facebook solves. Um, okay. Any more on that or well, so, so one to... other thing they talk yeah. about is, is not just decentralizing your data, <coughs> excuse me, but also decentralizing, uh, I guess the, the, the processing, uh, involved here. Um, so, and, and, and possibly, uh, you know, spreading this out, not just into server farms and, and to servers in your own homes, but to other people, Pro- you know, basically turning everybody else's devices on, on the, the wider web into the cloud. Well, uh, processing what? I mean, so every company out there is paying 
uh, Amazon servers and, and all that to, to process their big data. Uh, if you want to sell part of your uh, computation time, if someone could set that up, fine. You know, but well, I, I think I that's the idea the because you don't want Amazon yeah. doing it because when it's all done through Amazon, then they can scrape that and use that data for improving their algorithms and, and doing whatever they're doing. I don't know if they do. I mean, I, you think that the that the stuff that Foursquare or whoever that, puts through Amazon that I don't being, know about. Yeah. Um, but but for example, we do know that uh, if you use Gmail, uh, that uh, while a a human Googler may not be reading your email, that they're basically scraping every single email that goes through their their email servers to use it for training their their. Uh, machine learning algorithms for predictive email writing and and spam sorting and everything else. So they've got a giant uh, you know log somewhere of every email that you've you've sent and received. And uh, I I don't I'm not saying that decentralizing that solves that problem. In fact, I think it opens a whole new can of worms related to that. Yeah. But but some people would be attracted to the idea of taking that out of the hands of the almighty Google and and breaking that up somehow. Yeah. How many people uh, email themselves their passwords? And so what if it's like... Or, or how <laughs> many people my... save those in a Google Doc? Yeah. So what if my suggestion is, um, you know, I'm just typing along and all of a sudden my suggestion is, hello, my, um, he- hello, Aaron, your password for... Hello, Aaron <laughs> Bell, your password for uh, Amazon is this. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just got his password. Awesome. Just put it in. <laughs> so it may, maybe it's his Netflix password. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty well, sure. Well, and I would it. never share a Netflix password. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, that's not going to be a problem. But um, it's funny to think about, um, right? If they if they do scrape that for for that kind of data, okay. Um, so, well, I'll, I'll throw out one here. final note on on yeah. on this, and and that's that uh, kind of in in the in the beginning. And at the end, they they pose the question of you know, if, if these are indeed monopolies, then then maybe there needs to be some sort of regulation, uh, a, a regulatory uh, action taken. Uh, and I think you pulled the quote here um, that uh, this in itself may pose a regulatory challenge. However, since it would enable autonomous interactions online, law enforcement's uh, job is easy. Excuse me, yeah. anonymous interaction online, law enforcement's job is easier when dealing with companies with centralized data, not individuals. Yada yada yada. So uh, the, there, there are a couple of thoughts related to that. One well, hold on. Is, the last sentence is really interesting. It says the oh. U.S., U.K., and Australia jointly asked Facebook to delay adding encryption to its messaging services for law enforcement purposes. Yeah, and and, and I I think it was earlier. Was it earlier this year that they they added? Uh, end-to-end uh, encryption to Facebook Messenger and, and made a big deal of that. Um, yeah. they, I'm sure they didn't advertise that uh, this is coming, you know, six to 12 months later than planned because of uh, the request to the intelligence community. Uh, right. But, uh, and, 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 and I don't quote me on that. I'm not saying that those are the actual delays. Uh, that That's uh, just a, a supposition there. But uh, I, I think from the, the terms of in terms of regulation, there are a couple of thoughts here. One is is that if these are indeed dangerous monopolies, then maybe there's a way to, to break them up with regulation. However, um, if you're looking for for a a, a way to, to break the the paradigm to to uh, re, retake the web from these tech giants, uh, what was it uh, to to bring about a reboot? Uh, putting more regulation in place is exactly the way to kind of kill in the cradle these innovative ideas that might be coming up. Because regulation in this case uh, is absolutely going to benefit the incumbents. There's oh, no yeah. regulation that's going to pass. That it, it may make a weaker Facebook, uh, but it's going to make them stronger compared to anybody else trying to break into the market. And that's it's, all it's they gonna, care about. It's going to entrench. They, they, they may and it's know, also sh- going shrink to... their footprint, but they're going to fortify that position. Right. It's going to also... Um... Uh, be written with the assumption in with the with the companies in mind that already exist. Yeah. So so, it's, so if someone wants to do something new, then the regulations won't. Um, it will apply to them, but it won't uh, apply well. Like it won't be. Um, it will be very awkward. Just like you know, talk about net neutrality is the idea that um, the regulations on uh, the telecom companies should apply to. Uh, the internet service providers, which is, um, you know, doesn't, is not the same thing. Yeah. And, and that's become much more 
uh, of a viable line of thought now that we've moved from the era when anybody could start up an ISP in their neighborhood. Well, not anybody, but anybody tech savvy uh, to compete with the other options out there to most markets are lucky if you have two uh, reliable ISP options. Yeah. Well, we should return to net neutrality one day because we've we've been without it for a, a year or so, and um, we'll see if the world uh, is destroyed. Uh, so, okay. Well, uh, so, some I, would argue that the world has already basically been destroyed, and we're just yeah. waiting for the other foot to drop. But yeah, okay. let, let's let's. <laughs> Drop that and walk away from it. Yeah, none none of these problems with the internet are because of the lack of net neutrality. No, like no one says, "Oh, uh, Facebook has hijacked the web thanks to net thanks to you know Trump's regulation uh, removing <laughs> net neutrality or something like that." Uh, yeah, the, the internet so, was just as broken uh, before Trump. It, it was yeah. maybe uh, less of a dumpster fire, but just as broken. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, what else do we have here? Um, oh, just an interesting like side. I talked about Stefan Molyneux a couple episodes ago. Uh, he's that guy is getting so annoying online. <laughs> uh, he, he was particularly annoying last. I mean, sometimes he says things I agree with. But um, anyway, PayPal cut off his donations, uh, which is um, interesting. It kind of shows how, um, yeah, where they're starting to draw lines um, in regard to, okay, uh, we can kick you off social networks. We could deplatform you. We could demonetize you. And now we could even say, you know, you can't receive payments from us. Obviously, <laughs> with the emergence of cryptocurrency, that's going to be irrelevant soon. But I thought that was interesting. The first thing I thought was, you know, no, I'm having too much fun debunking all his fallacies and dead end ideas. <laughs> so now uh, I <laughs> now uh, I can't uh, spread around the uh, the the fodder for um, for for debunking, but. Uh, Oh, well. Yeah, I, I had a couple of thoughts on this, mo most of which were just tearing into the, the author of the article for um, not taking a, a neutral attack uh, on this, which uh, may, may, maybe I sh shouldn't be expecting that from, from Newsweek. But uh, th there were a couple of things in there. Um, first, the referring to, to this as, as being, quote-unquote, fan gifts, I, I thought that was... Uh, uh, a dismissive and pejorative. Uh, What's a that, fan gift? Well, so fan so these gift? these these quote unquote donations that he's getting through PayPal. Uh, oh, I see. I see. I I think for a growing uh, number of, of of people, this is becoming a legitimate business model. It, and, it is legitimate. And to call it fan gifts, it sounds like uh, someone sending him creepy fan mail with twenties slipped into it. It's yeah. And 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 particularly, uh, it, how how different is this than people who 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 are using Kickstarter or. Uh, Indiegogo or Patreon uh, to to fund their work. I, I think it's if, if anything, it's a a slightly less structured and and more more traditional because PayPal has been around for uh, I, I don't know how long. I'm going to ballpark a decade longer than those services. Mm. Um, and 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 so I I think it was uh, un, unfair to to paint everybody who who funds their work through PayPal as as just getting fan gifts. Um, yeah. Another thing was was the author referred to uh, a number of sensationalist titles for his YouTube videos, yeah. um, which may, maybe this is I showing like my personal bias. I didn't the, the think they author, were that sensational. Yeah. The author uh, just wants everyone to know that they're not a white nationalist and they don't agree yeah. well, with I mean, Molyneux's views. Fine. Uh, I, I mean, maybe, maybe, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the same side. I'm, but. I'm fully willing to to grant that maybe the content of these videos was sensationalist because I did not watch a single one. Yeah. Uh, okay. But but a video titled "The Truth About Canada's Election Part One: Immigration." That that sounds like it could be the title of a Frontline episode, not right. a sensationalist YouTube episode. Yeah, but then, well, look, I mean. You're not going to go in there and listen to it, but <laughs> I, I, I don't even want to get into it. But you well, can so, imagine. So, so that gets me yeah. to something else, which was yeah. uh, he the the Go author dropped earth. in there that that there was a, a an episode on the flat Earth conspiracy debate, so which the way I, he mentioned it made it sound very much like like Stephen Molyneux is a, a huge proponent of flat Earth theory, which I'm guessing is not the case. No, but but no, you can I, fill me in on more detail here. I regrettably listened to that one. <laughs> um, Actually, no, what he did was actually kind of interesting. He brought someone who believed in flat earth onto his show to debate them. 
but he didn't really debate them. Instead of debating them, he started to like psychoanalyze him. And he was like, well, what is it about you that you need to feel that the earth is flat? And started, it, it was just, uh, it was weird. So it, it, that, that poses an interesting question of, uh, what, when but, is it well, appropriate to make, uh, ad, ad hominem attacks? Uh, and is the, the situation where the person, uh, that you're debating against is clearly off their rocker. Well, it was interesting for that. I, I look in terms of getting interesting, uh, podcast or in, interesting YouTube video content. Like that was not a bad idea. Um, and, um, trying to actually think, figure out why these people believe what they believe. Um, well, it, it, yeah, it was a little bit interesting, but I don't want to push people to that one, but, sure. uh, yeah. Um, so, so to, to maybe step away from the specifics of, of Molyneux and, and to the larger question here, um, with, with electronic payment processors, uh, and, and, and payment systems. So your, your MasterCards or your PayPal's or whatnot, um, on the one hand, these are private companies. And so if they decide that they don't want to be affiliated with certain individuals or certain organizations, uh, that is their right. However, uh, they are becoming uh, a, a very significant connective tissue in the modern economy uh, in, in a world where uh, fewer and fewer transactions are happening every day with with face to face uh, interaction and, and certainly less and less with cash. Uh, it's 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 easy to make an argument at least as strong as that of well Facebook is is the you know the 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 town square of of the internet and therefore it should be regulated uh, with with uh, First Amendment uh, rights in mind uh, then then I think you can make a, a at least as strong argument that uh, these electronic payment services should not be discriminating based on the views of of their uh, their customers. You know, I just, as, as I, long as they're not outright breaking law. So obviously, if someone is yeah. gauging, engaging in illegal activities uh, such as arm smuggling or uh, child pornography uh, or, or things along those lines, then I think that that it is not only uh, not only right, but it is uh, it would should be required of these companies to cooperate with law enforcement. Uh, but for political reasons, it makes me feel a little bit squishy and uncomfortable. Sure. Sure. At the same time, I'm also squishy and uncomfortable with having the government come in and tell them what they have to do. Yeah, no, this whole the whole narrative of we've got to break up companies. People have form opinions of, oh, you got to break up this company and that company. And I bet those people couldn't name like three divisions within those companies and, and what their <laughs> products do. You know, and so it's just this um, it's just this narrative they push out like, hey, the government has to keep breaking up companies. Otherwise, uh, you know, otherwise the, the public interest in democracy is going to be ruined uh, when really I just feel that um, it's just I, I feel the antitrust stuff, even though it sounds good, is just it's always a scam. Um, <laughs> so I, I just want to move on from that. Uh, all right. Manning Publishing. Uh, have you uh, learned, uh, Aaron? You've learned quite a bit about machine learning and deep learning on this podcast, I assumed. I've learned quite a bit, too, even though I was coming in as the person who did this. Um, but there is always a chance to learn more and to apply these ideas in the real world. So uh, you remember in episode 87, I had Mark Ryan on the show to talk about his book, Deep Absolutely. Learning with Structured Data. Deep Learning with Structured Data. Uh, you can get that on Manning.com with the... Uh, discount code PODLOCALMAX19. You'll get 40% off that book and every other book on Manning.com. You could just go there and apply it. Uh, Manning.com has a lot of really great textbooks on everything from the basics of computer science, how to, um, you know, uh, textbooks on different programming languages, different frameworks, and, you know, other mathematical and technical topics. So it will, uh, if you just want to learn more and become an expert in one of these areas, uh, getting a book at manning.com is a great place to start. If you want to dive into software engineering, make yourself, give yourself some more marketable skills or build something, build software, build a website yourself, buying one of these books will be really helpful. So manning.com pod local max 19 is the discount code. We have a lot of Manning books in our Foursquare library at work, and it would make 
and a great addition to your work library. Sometimes you could even expense it if you're an engineer at your company, which means that you'll essentially get access to it for free. <laughs> but Pod Local Max 19 to get 40% off, learn computer science, learn technical frameworks, and make your job skills more marketable. And, and they've got titles and categories ranging from, it looks like, uh, Android looks to web to development. So uh, that's a big a, one. A lot to cover there. We, we, yeah, I mean, it's been so hard to find uh, good iOS engineers. Um, and uh, we are, um, yeah, we're, we're always short iOS and Android engineers at Foursquare. I know a lot of other companies are. So that's another area where there's big room for growth. So hot, hot industry tip for those. Uh... Those developers yeah. out there who, who might be looking for a, a way into Foursquare. Yeah. All right. So, uh, oh, yeah, iPhone, Android, absolutely. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about A-B testing. Um, so for those of you who don't know, A-B testing is when uh, the owner of an app or a website or some other service will actually create two versions of the service or multiple versions of that service and then run kind of a, um, a randomized uh, a, a randomized control trial where some people see the background in green, for example, other people see the background in purple, or maybe some people see the buy button in green, other people see the buy button in purple, and then they measure, you know, which people took the action they cared about more. Um, and so A-B testing is something that a lot of companies like to brag about. A lot of big companies tend to do it a lot. And I want to question, you know, what what is the proper use of A-B testing in this industry? Uh, is it overused? So here's the main quote from the article. The article that we read is from the Daily Grit, which is a paper on brands. Now, why do brands care about A-B testing? So from the point of view of brands, they're trying to figure out, uh, you know, how people see their company or their product, and they want to show it usually visually, but it could be in other ways, in different ways and see how dif different people respond. Uh, and so the main quote from the article from the Daily Grit is um, that means that, uh, you know, the main question is, is A-B testing dead? And the quote is, that means online entrepreneurs can no longer just sit in their offices and A-B test their landing page without ever contacting a member of their audience directly. They're now expected to build fan bases and sell on the strength of their own personality. They have to build personal connections. So they're essentially saying that A-B testing uh, – doesn't work anymore if it ever did. Um, I think that there was a time when it didn't work, but the general, it, it was over-relied upon as a, as a winning strategy. Um, A-B testing, in my opinion, is not a strategy. You can't just sit around changing the color of your buttons, changing the color of your background, moving things around. You might make something slightly easier to use, and it, sometimes it's worth using, uh, doing that research, but that cannot be the core of your business. Because think about it, that's not the core of the value that you're adding. Unless the value that you're adding is entirely based on user experience, uh, then yes, there has to be some A-B testing involved. But you're not going to mastermind your user experience by A-B testing uh, chiefly. Essentially, you'll have some expert uh, come out with, like, do some research um, on their own or do some creative processing on their own and try to figure out what a really good user interface would be. And then you could A-B test get that against what you have. But well, I, generally, I think some of these, these use cases they may be thinking about are are much narrower than, than the way you're perceiving. Because you're, you're coming at this yeah. from kind of a, an app development perspective almost. Um, yeah, yeah, that's I, true. Because there's apps and there's brands. and I, yeah. they're, they're thinking of, of almost uh, more, more of a kind of a referral market marketing perspective where they're not necessarily providing anything unique other than they're trying to uh, attract you to this other product that they're trying to sell you. And so they, okay. they don't, maybe if they don't own the product, so they, they can't improve the quality of the product itself, all they can do is try and improve the odds of when they, when when a customer sees their whether it's their landing page or their ad or or whatever, that what what gets me a higher conversion from viewing to clicking the buy button. Well, that's and, a cool tool. Like you're and if testing, you're if you're restricted yeah. to just that that narrow window of opportunity, this might make sense. But uh, there are definitely, if, if you have more control over the, the kind of the, the product and the full, the full pipeline, then there are absolutely more effective ways to focus your, your, your energy on improvement. Right. So it, 
just in general, it might be okay. It's it's not a bad idea to A/B test your sales pitch, you know, and see which works and 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 which doesn't. But first, you have to write some good sales pitches. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. And that you know, and and you actually have to understand what value people are bringing and. Um, you know, try to do it that way. Uh, you can't just sit around and say, "Oh, I'm going to test different colors and different synonyms for this one word in my sale in my in my marketing email," and then eventually, uh, over time, I'll get customers. Um, first of all, you know, a lot of these tests get very small improvement. If this stuff gets a 0.1 percent improvement, uh, then it might make sense for large corporations. So I know I'm not. I know I'm t- coming out of the sales pitch again and going back into user interface, but uh, you know. Microsoft, Netflix. Netflix does a lot of A-B testing. If you get yeah. a 0.1% improvement in the number of people who don't cancel their subscription from a slight change to the interface, then, okay, fine. It's maybe worth paying a few engineers, like giving you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a budget to that. But Well, yeah, there, there was uh, an interesting uh, story a while back. Uh, Netflix had a... Um, an anthology series. I don't know if you've if you've seen it. Uh, I think it was Love, Death, and Robots, and no. uh, they they didn't randomize the order the episodes were shown, but I think there were three different orders that they could be ser- served up to you. And yeah. uh, I I th- I think they said that it was random which order you got, but there was a lot of speculation that they may have been using uh, data about your viewing habits and what they knew about you to perhaps provide you the episodes in a in an order that was be more likely to get you hooked uh which they they denied actually doing that but the potential for doing that kind of thing uh has has a lot of interesting opportunities there yeah but that's that is really i think works a lot more at scale like i said if you have a lot of customers already if you're trying to uh, scram if you're a small company and you're trying to get customer by customer or even in the hundreds or thousands uh then uh, getting this one percent improvement is not going to be a big deal for you. You actually have to understand what people are are going for, and you actually have to create the product or the sales pitch. Um, also, another uh, j- just from an automation perspective, A/B tests are really really slow to get feedback. I mean, some of the A/B tests that we ran at Foursquare, it could be uh, a month, like weeks at least, before. Um, there were significant results on whether A was better than B or... Just in, in you know, terms like, of collecting enough volume of data? Right, right. And that is... And also a lot of times A-B tests are run because managers want to see A-B tests, but in the end they've already made up their minds and hmm. no matter how the test uh, result... Um, whatever happens with the test result, the same decision is going to be made anyway. And so that's a lot of expense for no reason. Well, I, um, I can see one of the attractive things about A/B testing is is that it's it is showing you actual results as opposed to when you survey your users, uh, the oh, the yeah. answer they give may not necessarily map directly to how they would actually behave in that situation. Much much right. like uh, in in the context of politics, exit polling does not equal election results. Right, and so and and, and pre-election polling certainly doesn't equal election results. No, but I think there could be some kind of. Um... There could be some kind of system where if, if you want to build a truly intelligent like user interface, let's say, um, you could actually have the interface, you know, you, you could have the computer show people several different interfaces and have it evolve the interface over time based on its best guess, its best Bayesian guess on the small amount of data that it gets from those few people. So, so that would be an interesting Are you suggesting a, a UI design by machine learning? Um, well, it's just an interesting idea that uh, you can actually have something uh, work. Uh, I mean, look, it would be very difficult to set that system up. I'm not saying that it's just an easy thing that I, everyone at their company should just go ahead and do. But I just think it's an interesting idea because if these A-B tests are frequent statistics, require a lot of data, can take a lot of time, is very slow, it would be interesting if you had more like a flexible system, system that um, – you know, made inferences based on a few data points, which means that it didn't actually make the inference of whether A is better than B, but it, it gets the it gets the probability distribution over how much A is better than B or vice versa, and then kind of moves on and, and sort of builds a model of how people behave. Um, that, I'm sure that companies try that too. Um, but I, I think 
I think the trick with A-B tests in a smaller situation, in a bigger company, they're running them all the time because those small improvements get a lot of money. I think that the, um, the, there's like a cult of A-B testing that uh, definitely should not be brought into smaller companies. Yeah, well, um, I, and you should only run them is, very... You should only run them... That, go, go ahead. <laughs> you should only run them periodically for the big changes you want to make. Yeah, I was going to say, it's... It's the curse of, of being uh, a fairly easy to understand thing uh, because you can present this to someone who does not have a deep background in statistics. They can get what's going on and so they will be much more likely to come back to that tool and use it again and again because they feel that they can understand it. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, your your marketing manager is much less likely to uh, to keep asking for for some sort of more complex analysis that they don't completely understand and aren't as comfortable with. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's sure. it's straightforwardness is is uh perhaps uh, a weakness in that it it allows for it to be vastly overutilized. It's become a crutch. Right, right. And like I said, it's it's often overridden. It's because people don't want to take responsibility for their decisions. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that, that's that's my my take on it a lot of the time. Um, not that it shouldn't be used, um, but I mean, you don't. It's interesting how it used to be one of these things where A/B tests was sort of a um, you know sort of considered the gold standard, and people have backed off because a lot of these. Um, a lot of these things that start off as good ideas end up becoming doctrine, and then they end up becoming like, you know, uh, I, I don't want to use the word cult again, but I want to use what's <laughs> what's the word I want to use? It ends up becoming common, like just just an overused cliche, or not not necessarily cliche, just something that um, what's something that everyone believes just because everyone believes it. I I know what you mean, but I can't think of the right word for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a good word for it, but uh, okay. But anyway, it's, it's, it's like, more than common knowledge. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, <laughs> a mass hallucination. <laughs> yeah, but it's not a hallucination. It's just a, it's just like a mass ideology that everyone holds, and then it gets used to this crazy extent, um, and then all of a sudden, a few years later, people forget about it, and so it just makes you think about how, like, a lot of the stuff that we're told day to day about how, oh, this is the way our company should be run. This is the way you should run your life. This is, you know, is, is just kind of, are just kind of passing fads that maybe have a grain of truth to them, but, um, you know, maybe shouldn't be taken too seriously. Yeah, well, and, and there's, there's, of course, the structural problem to A-B testing, uh, that if the best solution to a problem isn't A or B, uh, you, you're not going to discover that with A-B testing. Right, right. And that was a problem with the ads, to, with uh, working on attribution and Foursquare, the ads too, which, you know, companies didn't want to run um, A-B tests. They didn't want to run, you know, tests where they didn't show ads to people. How, how could we not show ads to people? That's well, like yeah, I, I, I guess that's, that's much like uh, in, in the pharmaceutical business with uh, uh, placebo tests uh, and, and clinical trials. It's, if, if you have a a medication or, or a vaccine or something that, that you are convinced is going to save lives, then how could you ethically choose to not give it to a group of people who desperately need it? I, yeah, I guess point. it's, it's, it's not as bad as, as, uh, as doing double blind tests where you're intentionally, uh, infecting people with something terrible to see if it, you know, or, or, or you know, making people smoke cigarettes to see if it actually has a negative effect on their health. But, uh, it's, it's the other side of that coin. Yeah. All right. So um, just to close this one out, you uh, you weren't happy with the way of the end of this article. Yeah. Well, so so <laughs> we we were very focused on on A/B testing, what what it is, why why it may or may not work. Uh, but but they were proposing that basically they they were basically jumping to the conclusion that it's broken. It doesn't work. We're not getting the results out of what we want. And so the solution uh, is is that. Uh, we need to be following much more of a kind of an influencer model. And so uh, in order to convert these sales, gotcha. uh, you need to be building a cult of personality and using your reputation to sell, uh, which uh, that is certainly a methodology that works. Um, I the, wonder if that's going to become the next, uh, you know, um, overdone thing. I mean, for, in, in terms of Instagram influencers, I, I think it's it absolutely already is. Already yeah. is. <laughs> uh, but but I don't think we're going to see it disappear entirely. Um, yeah. But, but so... One of the things they said that that is 
you need you need to find products that you're actually passionate about that you actually care about and enjoy because your audience can sense the fakeness if if you're just shilling for something that you don't actually believe in. Um, yeah. And 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 so they said that that you know that that finding things that that you care about that you believe in uh, it's not and 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 choosing to sell those quote it, that's not just straightforward it's also easy. Um, which which I, I kind of thought was was BS, um, and it, it made me oh, think yeah. of of that 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 whole mantra that you know if, if you know uh, find find a way to to do what what you love uh, for a job and you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, to to which I've always uh, asserted that the corollary is that if you get a job doing something you love, you will grow to hate it. Um, ah. So, well, that's if, very negative, Aaron. Well, if, <laughs> but, if you if you got a job as a professional chocolate taster and you had to taste chocolate for eight hours a day, five days a week, fifty weeks a year, you would eventually get pretty sick of chocolate. And yeah, I guess you're right. I, I I'm I'm taking a very jaded view there, but yeah, but I went I, to the chocolate I think... factory here in Brooklyn. It's over there. I'm pointing out the window, like I'm actually seeing where it was, and the people <laughs> there seem pretty happy in the chocolate factory. Yeah, well, and and, and the delicious. people at Ben and Jerry's get to take home two pints a day, but yeah. But but it doesn't take long before you're trying to pawn those off on friends and relatives because if you eat two pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream a day, uh, you're gonna wish that they use that that uh, employee benefit towards a, a a gym in the in the factory. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I I don't know if they have a gym in the factory. Um, so uh, yeah, I think I mean it's also a struggle to find something you like for work and especially in software. I think there's a lot of tasks, a lot of jobs in software development that are not as much fun and it's a constant battle to not have to do those things all the time yeah and it's, so it's, it's certainly it's, not all glamour so find a job that's something you love is something i agree with but it's a constant fight to to get there um which is not easy uh so okay uh which is maybe a little less negative than your corollary but still uh not as not as far. And also, I don't think it's straightforward either. You have to ask yourself, which products do you like? And you want to, in this case, it's what do you want to sell? But I think that it equally applies to, well, what do you want to work for? You want to work for a company that you believe in, has products you believe in, and, um, you know, that uh, are interesting to you. Um, that is not an entirely straightforward question. People kind of assume it is. Like people, you know, when you're in college and, and you're, you're about to graduate and people are like, oh, what are you interested in? And a lot of people don't have a good answer. A lot of people have a stock answer that, that will get those questions off their back. But it's not what they really believe or what they're, you know, a lot of people are just not as, as sure as, um, as other people think they are. Yeah, well, and, that and, makes and sense. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this to a topic that we absolutely don't have time to cover uh, today, but that uh, we should we should hit on in the future. Um, a lot of people talk about universal basic income uh, in that context. That well, if if you were were guaranteed to have uh, everything you needed to survive on, then you would truly be free to pursue what you really what you really care about, your true passion. And and I think uh, most of us would have nowhere to go. Uh, We'd have no idea where to start with that process if all of a sudden the uh, the burden of of taking care of our our needs was lifted from us and we we had to figure out what to do with ourselves to satisfy our our wants uh, purely on that basis. So yeah. that's that's a door I'll leave open for future t discussion because I, I think at least as long as Andrew Yang uh, stays in the in the primaries uh, universal basic income is going to be a, a ripe issue for discussion for a while yeah, uh, well there, people are going to keep bringing it up over and over I, I think so I yeah think. he's um, certainly not the first uh, one to raise it yeah yeah and he won't be the last all right so I just want to go touch on your one bullet point on the on the end what are you talking about with the modernized home shopping oh network? yeah so so this this idea of uh, that it's it's about uh, pe people that we recognize. So whether it's 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 uh, the the inventors of of a product or or the or or somebody else who's who's vested in it coming to us and giving a you know a live demonstration or an impassioned talk about why this is a good product and why you should buy it. It it made me think a lot about the early days of of the home shopping network where where you literally have the person who invented you know the the uh, a newfangled mop uh, or or uh, you know, uh, uh, ha handmade dog beds or something, and they and they come on the show and they they 
they display their products and they talk about why you should buy them and and they clearly care about it because they're invested in it literally and emotionally uh, and that convinces people to to then purchase it and and that's kind of the business model that they're talking about here uh, replacing the what what was perhaps previously filled by this uh, somewhat mercenary a b testing approach and and I don't know that that's really that certainly elements of that are going to be with us uh, for a long time. But I, I think what they're proposing is, is really a hearkening back to an age that had a, a different kind of captive audience. And for, for anyone younger than the boomer generation, I, I don't think it's going to translate quite the same way they think it does. Yeah. I really hate not, these not to okay jump boomer. on the okay boomer. Yeah. Meme, I, I am not a fan there. of those memes. First of all, everyone's going to get older at some point. And so uh, what are we? Well, <laughs> I think that the people who are using or overusing the OK Boomer memes are themselves going to be the ones most affected by the, hey, get a load of these old people these days when they grow old um, because they're I'm, too I'm focused on their own that, generation. I'm waiting for that critical inflection point where millennial goes from being like a, hey, you kids get off of my lawn to a, oh, those old farts, uh, uh, pejorative because because it's gonna yeah. happen uh yeah it will happen one day and, and i guess are are we technically on the the uh the would it, would it be the far or the near the, we're we're we're, we're the old earliest millennials yeah. yeah and the right that, now the generation Z it's a label that i refuse them, to accept yeah the generation z is calling themselves zoomers um I, yeah i i i Yes, I don't like millennial, particularly since we're bunched in with the younger millennials who are the ones that have the most stereo, like the most stereotypical millennial thing are not people born in the mid 80s. It's mostly well, people born for, in the For the record, 90s. boomers, millennials, even the greatest generation, you are not welcome on my lawn. So unless you have an invitation, <laughs> get off my lawn. A silent generation? No? So, they, they can silently stay off my lawn. <laughs> okay. Um, I assume that whatever generation is after Gen Z um, is going to be your kids' friends, so uh, they will probably be on your well, lawn. Well, uh, they, they, should, they should call first. Okay, good. <laughs> and, uh, on, on my landline, because I'm going to get one just, just to be an old fart. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, <laughs> Is that is that what happens now, or you know that that's not how it works. It's not like you get we get older and then we get the the landline and then we get even older and then we start uh, getting into vinyl records. It, well, it's, I no, we're, I we're have gonna, been. It's going to be something else, and then the stuff that we use that seems new is going to seem old. I have been toying with the idea of picking up another typewriter, uh, but but I've 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 had at least one for a long long time, and and oh, some someone threw out the crazy. Uh, factoid the other day um that was i, I think the the last uh typewriters ceased manufacture it was it, i think it was a factory in india and it was far later than i thought it was like the early 2000s so uh we, we are only starting to see kids in in uh you know graduating high school now who were born after the last typewriter was manufactured oh yeah that's interesting well i we, I had a typewriter in my elementary school. Um, I, I remember that, writing. We, we had to borrow the next door neighbor's electric typewriter, which was yeah. super fancy because it was electric. But it's weird because they're also computers at the same time. So they're like sometimes you use the computer, but you can also use the typewriter to type, which is another valid way to type. And then after yeah. well, a couple, and, and, after like nineteen, like after kindergarten, first grade, they're like, yeah, it's typewriter. We don't really see the need for it anymore. But it was a legitimate overlap, unlike fax machines, yeah. which have somehow still held on in, into some very weird niches. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of stuff that uh, Gen Z uses that that to us are going to is going to seem strange. Have you uh, heard of TikTok at all? I, I have, and I refuse to to get any closer than I already am. <laughs> well, I mean, so I am not. I'm getting so many updates about TikTok. That's the new. Uh, social media. I mean, I really liked Vine, which were, was the the short videos that uh, ended up getting bought by by Twitter. And so, um, yeah, people are always going to find different media to, uh, what, to communicate. What was with. the other video? Was it was it Periscope? Does that still exist, or did that get swallowed up into something else entirely? Paris, I think Periscope was part of Twitter. I'm not sure. 
Um, I think those eventually got shut down. They just weren't as that was live video. It wasn't yeah. as interesting as they thought it would be. And essentially, Facebook and Instagram and others have live video. Uh, I mean, I that, I would I would tar the entire social media with that label not as interesting as they thought it would be but <laughs> yeah, you might be right i'm just one grumpy old man as we've clearly established well i that's that's good some people need to hear from that <laughs> all right i'm gonna leave it there we went off on a few tangents maybe but only because we're having a lot of fun doing it if i made some off-the-cuff statement on a tangent that's maybe a little bit um well i'm, I'm sure i'll hear from you on that, uh, localmaxradio at gmail.com if you want to call me out for anything I said. We also brought up a couple of news articles that talk about, quote, new studies say. You know, there are a lot of articles like that, and it's always good to step back and think about how much stock we should put in these and how much these types of articles are actually already affecting our day-to-day decisions. Um, and so I'll put that in a later episode either next week or as a bonus, because that was another interesting discussion I had with Aaron. Uh, and finally, you know, I have a little bit of break between guests. I have a few guests, you know, starting starting back up again in December. But next week, I want to do something. Uh, I, I want to start discussing a topic that I've been thinking deeply about for over 20 years. And that's the it's a mathematical topic. And that's the nature of infinity and what the practical implications are for this abstract concept. There are a bunch of different ways to approach infinity. There are a bunch of different meanings. So this is going to take several episodes, uh, but it's going to start next week, and it's it's going to be practical. It's going to get you thinking about uh, the mathematical world and the probabilistic world in a different way, I think. And um, I, I hope you'll join me to see what I have to stay, say about it. Um, and so, okay, yeah, solo show next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.